Welcome to another episode of Scientific Imagination, a podcast about the role and function of imagination in science. In this podcast, I'm going into conversation with Professor of Philosophy Amy Kind. Amy is the Director of the Gold Centre for Humanistic Studies at the Claremont McKenna College. Amy primarily works in the field of philosophy of mind. Much of her work revolves around the topic of imagination, exploring its nature and various applications. She has also made significant contributions to the study of phenomenal consciousness. Further details about her research can be found on her research page on Field Papers and Google Scholar. For more information and links, visit scientificimagination.org. My name is Sabine Winters and I'm a philosopher of space and science. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Welcome on this podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Just First things first, because you are a professor of philosophy and director of the Gold Center for Humanistic Studies at the Claremont McKenna College. What is your current focus of your work? Well, I for a long time I've worked on imagination and it really goes back to my dissertation research way back in the 90s. And I have continued to work on imagination to this day and I've really been diving in in the last few years, the last decade or so, into questions concerning the epistemic value of imagination and really focusing on how imagination has epistemic relevance and how we can bring it into the epistemic sphere. So I think that imagination too often in philosophy had been sort of written out of epistemology. So it had been thought not really to be relevant to our epistemic inquiries, or at least insofar as it was, it had like a very, very circumscribed role. Maybe it would be useful in our knowledge about possibility. But besides that, it wasn't really thought that imagination could do anything for us. Epistemically, it couldn't provide us with knowledge it couldn't justify. I think imagination does have epistemic value. It does have epistemic relevance. I'm really overall an optimist about imagination and about imagination's power. My work on the epistemic relevance of imagination led me to sort of ferret out something that I think was often presupposed in discussion of imagination, but that had not really been discussed as much as I thought it should. And that's the claim that imagining is a skill. So I have been working to develop a sort of skills-based apparatus for imagination, a skills-based framework, I guess it's better to say, a skills-based framework for imagination. So what does it mean to think of imagination as a skill? What ramifications does it have for all different sorts of things that we say about imagination? So I guess the trajectory was sort of like long time thinking about imagination, started to think about the epistemic relevance of imagination. That led me to start to think about imagination as a skill because I realized I thought it was being presupposed. And then very recently, I've been interested in some questions about imagination and creativity. And so I wrote a little monograph for the Cambridge Elements series on imagination and creative thinking. And I am now with Yulia Langkow, we're co-editing an Oxford handbook on philosophy of imagination and creativity. And I think there has been a fair amount of work on imagination and philosophy, especially over the last, say, 25 years, more and more each day. There has been some work on creativity, but it's been more confined to certain areas of aesthetics, say. And so we're really interested in 
sort of branching out and bringing together lots of different questions about creativity and how it connects with imagination. So that is to come. It's in process, but that's a little bit about what I've been thinking about lately. Wow. So many topics that I want to address later, but maybe first because because before we dive into the epistemic role of imagination or imagination as a skill, how would you describe the role of imagination in your everyday life? When do you use imagination and how? That's a really great question. I think we all do use imagination quite a bit in our everyday lives and maybe we don't realize how much we're using it and we don't really stop to attend to our imaginings. Sometimes we do. I mean, you know, it might be that we're in a boring meeting and we sort of start daydreaming about various things and we might then start to attend to our imaginings. But in any case, in my everyday life, let me try to give you some concrete examples. Well, so maybe one obvious one to start off is that I think I use imagination in my philosophical work. So I think I use imagination, and that is part of my everyday life. So I think I use imagination when I'm coming up with examples, when I'm trying to follow out the consequences of various arguments, imagining where my work will take me, imagining what some critic will say in response to something I've written and sort of imagining that dialogue. So imagination definitely plays a role in my philosophical work. I think in my everyday life, I'm a parent, I'm a parent of two teenagers when, well, my, so my older son is now off at college, but my, so I'm imagining less about him on a daily basis. But when my younger son is out past when he said he'd be home, I start imagining all sorts of horrible things that might have happened or what he has gotten into. Those are not the most pleasant imaginings, but I really do start to see scenarios in my mind and I, ca I can't even, I can't even help myself. So I don't think that's a use of imagination, but that's a place where imagination enters into my daily life. And then I think it enters in all sorts of other mundane, un other kinds of mundane ways. So I might call upon imagination when I'm trying, when I'm at the grocery store and I'm trying to figure out like what we're going to eat all week. And I start to imagine different combinations of foods and different things that I want to buy or that I need to buy in order to make that happen. So oh, that's one sort of very concrete planning episode, but I think we use imagining in all other sorts of planning episodes or decision-making episodes. And my I'll say just two more things about imagination in my daily life. And this is just to give a sense of the rich and varied ways that I think imagination comes into play in daily life and everyday life. But I just talked about the imagining what a critic would say in response to something that I'm working on. But I think I also imagine conversations that I might have to have over the course of the day, difficult conversations that I'm about to have. Maybe I'm about to meet with a student and I have to bring down the hammer, you know, in the sense of they haven't been doing what they should be doing. And I sort of imagine how the conversation might go, what I can do to make the conversation easier. I have some students who are trying super, super hard and they're not seeing the results that they want. And I want to be supportive of them. So I imagine, you know, how I can do that. And that brings me to the last thing I'll say, which is I think that I use imagination in daily life in context of trying to understand others and in terms of empathetic aspects of everyday life. So I think I've started to realize more and more recently how often we misunderstand others. Mm -hmm. I've heard, I've just been in a few conversations lately where I've heard someone report on 
what they thought someone else was thinking or why they responded in a certain way. And I had taken their comments in conversation to, to mean something else entirely. So one of us was misunderstanding what the other person was really thinking, or both of us, at least one of us was misunderstanding it. And I've been trying to attend more carefully. I, I don't want to say just very recently, but definitely it's something that I've been more conscious of over the last months or years, let's say since the world opened up again post pandemic and I started interacting with people in person. One of the things I do in my work in thinking about how imagination can have epistemic relevance is I think about a notion that I call imaginative scaffolding. And it's this idea scaffolding out from experiences that we've had to experiences that we haven't. And we do this by a process of addition and subtraction, modification, combination, right, of past experiences. And I think when the pandemic started and the world shut down, all of a sudden we were in completely unknown territory. We didn't really know how to, how to imagine our way out of it. We didn't know how to imagine what things were going to be like. And I think the pandemic gave us over the course of the two years or so, I mean, I don't really know if we're post-pandemic yet, we're acting as if we are, but but I think the pandemic gave us this whole new set of experiences that we are now using in our current imaginings, right? As we're scaffolding out, we're drawing on those materials. And I think a lot of those experiences were really scary, right? I mean, we were isolated, we were scared, we were scared to have any social contact. So that made the isolation worse, like people became kind of the enemy, right? We were in our little pods, we were bubbled up, the outside world seemed very terrifying. And it's not as if we didn't have experience with many of us. It's not as if we didn't have experience with disease before or experience of crisis. But I think that the pandemic made things very, very salient to us, these things very, very salient to us in a way that they hadn't been before. And I think that enabled our imaginations to go a little wild, right? Yeah. So we had all this new experience and all of a sudden we started scaffolding out in these directions in sort of scary ways. And I think that some of those imaginings probably did create increased anxiety, right? Uh, And I mean, that's aside from just the social isolation and all of the anxiety that that causes. But I do think that we all got to us. I don't want to say everyone, but many of us sort of felt like we lost a certain safety in the world or safety in the company of others. And that is scary fodder for the imagination. So I often think about all the good that imagination can do, but when you're in dark times, the dark times can prompt pretty dark imaginings. I think that's what happened and that that has led and continues to lead to a lot of this anxiety and angst that we see amongst our students and amongst ourselves. I mean, it's not just the students, right? No, Um, no, it's definitely not. No. Yeah, I feel angst in a way I I didn't used to. In this sense, maybe imagination or or bewildering imagination can be a, a pitfall leading us astray from epistemic possibilities. In other scenarios, imagination can definitely be a guide to epistemic possibility. For example, in scientific imagination, how would you describe the difference between the maybe regular imagination or the imagination in our everyday lives and scientific imagination? Is there any 
difference? So is there any difference between imagination in our daily lives and the scientific imagination? So that's a good question. And I think to some extent, the answer is yes. And to some extent, the answer is no. So I'm going to give a kind of nuanced answer. So I do think it's the same sort of mental activity in both cases. I think we're doing the same thing. But I think that we are putting that mental activity to different uses. And when we put it to different uses, um, it can start to seem like a very different tool. And, you know, that's probably not uncommon with respect to tool use. So a tool, the same, the very same tool that we use in one context sort of comes to seem to us to be different in another context. So I think it's the very same activity of imagining in everyday life and in scientific imagining. But I think, for example, when we are in a boring meeting, to come back to an example I used earlier, when we're in a boring meeting and our imaginations start to roam and we start to daydream, we're sort of spinning out our imaginations in an unconstrained way. Whereas I think in scientific imagination, although we do let it roam free, I think nonetheless, we often have to put certain constraints on our imagination in order for it to have the epistemic relevance and power that it's going to have in the scientific context. So I often distinguish in my work between transcendent uses of imagining and instructive uses of imagining. And the idea is, and this is an imperfect dichotomy, but the idea is that in transcendent imaginings, we sort of release the constraints from imagining and we try to escape the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. So a lot of daydreaming or certain kinds of creative acts or pretending or engaging with fiction, we release constraints. But yet when we're using imagination for planning or for decision-making or for thought experimentation or in scientific contexts, I think that we put various constraints on imagination so that we can learn from it appropriately. Like if, I mean, it, we might have to release some constraints, but we're really trying to use it to learn about, about the world around us. And so it has to be constrained in certain ways to the parameters of the world around us. So the fact that in ordinary life, in some contexts, we're sort of more interested in releasing constraints. And in the scientific context, we're often more interested in, in imposing constraints, not always, but often. I think that might lead us to think about imagination differently in everyday life than we think about it in scientific contexts. But nonetheless, I think it's the same mental activity. Thank you. What I was wondering, you argue that um, imagination is a skillful practice. You can learn by imagining more and more how to use imagination for epistemic possibility or as a guide to epistemic possibility. And I was wondering when it comes to the differences in the transcending imagination when used in fiction or whether it is in the scientific context, would you say that both, both kinds of imagination are a skillful practice? I do think so. They might be slightly different skills, but that doesn't really bother me in the sense that Oh, sometimes I use an example of running. And so it's a very different skill to run marathons than to run sprints, right? Yes. And you have to train differently. And you might have a very, you might work to have like different musculature, you know, you, you need, you need, right? When I look at marathon runners, they have very different body shapes from when I look at sprinters. So those are both running skills, but they're very different in various ways. And so we can say with respect to transcendent and instructive uses of imagination, they're both imaginative skills, but they might operate differently. And that doesn't make me 
worry at all about the claim that imagining is a skill. I mean, I think that there will still be some commonality, just like there's some commonalities between, I mean, I assume there's some commonalities between marathon running and sprinting. Like there are certain things that both of those kinds of running, certain sub skills that both of those kinds of running use. And likewise, I think there are certain kinds of sub skills that both transcendent and instructive imagining use. So thinking again about the ability to add and, and subtract our experiences, right, to do this imaginative scaffolding, I think that's going to be a certain kind of subskill sub that utilize both. But I do think that one of the things that makes us especially good at doing certain kinds of transcendent imagining is really releasing constraints. And so there are all different kinds of ways that we can practice that. And if you think of the kinds of games that improv actors use, just to give one example, right, to get themselves to be able to continue a scene in, a, in an interesting way, right, just given something unexpected and just to go with it, to go with this thing or other, or to come up with the unexpected. I think that's a certain kind of skill that we might see mirrored in transcendent imagining. Whereas in the scientific context, we have to be really good at sort of balancing the appropriate level of, of imposing constraints and letting ourselves free to discover new possibilities. So similarities, but differences as well, but both skillful practices. Thank you. Really nice example of the marathon and, and the sprinter. You were referring to the releasing constraints of imagination and the balance between bewildering imagination and constrained imagination in scientific thought experiments, for example. How would you describe a fruitful balance between constrained and bewildering imagination? How would we know imagination is pointing in the right direction of new epistemic possibilities? Yeah, that's a really good but really hard question, right? And if, yeah. I, had the, if I had the perfect answer, then everything would be done. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like that would be a mic drop moment if I could just give you a perfect answer. But I think that, I mean, we can kind of see some instances of this in some mundane everyday context. So let me give you one example. So an example that often comes up in discussions of imagination and using imagination to make decisions or learning from imagination is, is a case where you've bought or you have a piece of furniture and you need to get it from one room to the next and mm -hmm. you need to fit it through a tight doorway. And so the piece of furniture is heavy. You don't want to be holding it for too long, right? And so you might do various kinds of mental rotations or imaginings to figure out how the piece of furniture is going to fit through the doorway. Okay, so here it matters when we're imagining this that we... In imagination, we keep the piece of furniture the size that it actually is, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't help us if we imagine a smaller piece of furniture because that's not going to show us how it fits through the door. And likewise, we need to imagine the door the size it actually is because if we imagine a magically enlarged door, then we don't have to rotate at all. So on the one hand, we have to hold those constraints, okay, because the size of the piece of furniture and the size of the door really matter. But what we're doing is releasing certain constraints about the way the piece of furniture is currently con configured before us because we're mentally rotating it. 
right? And so we're imagining that piece of furniture in a different position. And that is a release of constraint. It's it's a release of constraint about how the piece of furniture is actually sitting on mm -hmm. the ground. And so, so just that sort of mundane task of mentally rotating an object is to release certain kinds of constraints. Okay, well, what can we learn from that when we think about other kinds of epistemic contexts or the scientific contexts? There are there are going to be certain knowns, and then there are certain unknowns, right? And I don't have a, a formula for you, but well, I think you're interested in space. So let's suppose that we're trying to imagine certain things about life on other planets, right? We're, or we're trying to learn certain things about life on other planets. And so we might have to factor in and, and keep fixed in imagination all of the facts about the climate on the planet or the, the surface temperature of the planet. There are gonna be these facts about the, the way the planet actually is. And we have to constrain those. But then when we're thinking about the possibility of life, we have to release the constraints of life like ours, right? Because it doesn't have to be, if we're thinking about life on that planet, we don't have to think about organisms that have the kind of body structure that are that we do. We don't have to think about organisms that have the kind of sensory apparatus that we do. And so, so that's an example of where in a scientific context, we have to strike a balance. And we might, in the course of trying to imagine this, realize that we've imposed certain constraints that we shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden we realize, oh, wait, life doesn't have to be like that, right? Like we yeah. were assuming such and such. And it's when we realize that that constraint was mistakenly applied that we can make certain progress. I think science fiction off, off, I think science fiction authors do this brilliantly often. So I recently read Project Hail Mary which is an imagining, I don't want, I hate spoilers, so I don't want to say too much about it, but there is an encounter with an alien creature from another planet. And it turns out that the author, Andy Weir, who also wrote The Martian, I think he does brilliantly this job of imposing certain constraints, you know, what the planet is actually like, and yet imagining what, how creatures who live in that kind of environment would have had to evolve or adapt, right? And what their society would be like. So I think that kind of science fiction can give us a window into, I mean, I, I'm not saying that, that scientists should just read a lot of science fiction necessarily, but I'm just saying in terms of thinking about this, and well, maybe they should, but I'm saying in terms of this release and imposition of constraints, we see nice examples of that in science fiction. And I think we see similar examples of that in various scientific discoveries. Yeah. I get really enthusiastic about, about this, this part, especially there's also a Netflix series that is biologist, philosophers, scientists have worked together on life on other planets. And they really, I don't know the name, I forgot the name of this series where they imagined other creatures living on other planets in different circumstances. And then I'm wondering whether they are actually on the right track, whether these creatures actually do exist somewhere. And regarding the science fiction, I talk a lot with researchers at ESA and many of them, especially in the advanced concept team, thinking about the future of space science and space industry, they do 
read a lot of science fiction and I'm very interested in how science fiction is feeding their ideas of how the future of space industry should look like. Regarding to the Martian, I also wanted to mention that I, I did a short series on, on film and philosophy. We watched together the Martian and someone from the University of Wageningen, which is a very small city in the Netherlands, talked about how they, how they cultivated crops on Mars. And he actually said it was very scientifically correct, which is something that really interests me as well. The where science and fiction overlaps in films. Having said all that, I've read your book, Creativity and Imagination. And what I found very, very interesting is the difference between creativity and imagination. They are very much intertwined and, and related, but I think that there is a philosophical difference that is very striking. Could you, could you elaborate a bit on your, your perspective on the differences between creativity and imagination? Sure. When we talk about creativity, we talk about creativity in a lot of different ways. So we talk about creativity with respect to people. So we might say that someone's a creative person. Mm -hmm. We talk about creativity with respect to particular products, right? So we might say that that is a creative piece of art. And then we talk about creativity with respect to process. So we might say that someone used a very creative process to come up with a certain result. And now the result might not be particularly interesting, but the process that led to that result was interesting. So creative persons, creative products, creative processes. And there are lots of questions about the relationship between those three, and I, I won't bother to get into that here. But when we think about imagination, imagination is a mental activity, right? And so it might be that someone happened upon a creative product, but they didn't use a creative process to get there. It was sort of luck or an accident or brute force, right? But yet the outcome is very creative. And I guess in that case, well, sorry, I should say that depending on your definition of creativity, you might take issue, one might take issue with that. But I think at least intuitively, we can say, we can look at a product and we say like, wow, that's a super creative product. And then we learn that it was just the result of like knocking over the ketchup bottle or something mm -hmm. like that. And we still think like, oh, it's it's very creative, but we, don't, we no longer think that the person was creative in making it or the process used was a creative process. And so likewise, I think that we would not want to say that imagination was involved in the product or especially involved in the production of that creative product. So there might be some creative products that don't result from imagination. And then I guess I think that there are lots of cases in which we imagine where we're not doing anything particularly creative in our imagining. I might imagine the same thing every day, right? Or every time my son is late, I might imagine the very same awful scenario. <laughs> and I don't think that there's anything particularly creative about those imaginings, not even the first time that I engage in them, but nonetheless, I'm engaging in acts of imagination. So I guess I think imagination and creativity are tightly intertwined because I think that creative processes often almost invariably draw upon imagination, mm -hmm. but I don't really think that it's likely that imagination and creativity, well, I don't think of them as the same thing. 
And then there are interesting questions about whether imagination is necessary or is sufficient for creativity. And that's some of what I explore in the book and try to tease apart different kinds of examples to figure out whether either of those claims are going to be going to be plausible. Yes, thank you. You have also a very interesting chapter on AI and creativity and imagination. In this perspective, do you think that AI will be able to imagine? It's a bit of a speculative question, maybe. In terms of AI imagining? Yes. It's, it's a really interesting question. It is speculative. It's a really interesting question. It's also a really hard question. So I'm teaching philosophy of mind right now, and we've just been doing a unit on whether computers can think and whether computers can be conscious. And so we read things on the Turing test and other classic articles relating to that. So I think the question of whether machines can imagine is a really interesting question, but I think it gets intertwined with so many other things. So do we have to sort out whether machines can be conscious before we can sort out the question of whether machines can imagine or What kinds of thinking can machines do? So I guess I think that machines are already producing various products that we are inclined to think of as creative products. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're using creative processes in doing so. When we look at some of the, when we do a deep dive into some of the algorithms, it doesn't always look particularly creative. I haven't done enough of a deep dive to make that determination, but certainly they produce certain kinds of outputs that look to be creative products. Like if a, if a human had produced such a work, we would think like, wow, that's, that's really cool. That's really creative. But I don't think that any of the machines that are producing these creative outputs right now are doing any imagining. I'm very disinclined to say that. And so in order to attribute imagining to machines in the future, I guess I think that they would have to sort of put forth a scenario in their artificial mind, so to speak, and perhaps produce mental imagery of it, play with it, tinker it with it, turn it around and do something analogous to what we do. Machine, if, if they are just running through mechanical steps, then even if they get to a creative output, I don't think that we would call that imagination. So sometimes you see in the literature people, I wouldn't want to call that imagination. So sometimes you see in the literature people referring to things like imagination machines. And I really think that often what they're referring to is something like a machine that does something like super cool and new. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, that's a different question from the question of whether the machines are imagining. And I think we're closer to machine creativity than we are, maybe even there, than we are to machine imagining. And I think in order to settle certain questions about machine imagining, we're going to have to dive into really hard questions about machine consciousness. Yeah. And the definition maybe also of what imagination exactly is. Right. Yes. A final, a final question. What role does wonderment play in your work and how is wonderment for, to you associated with imagination? So that's a cool question. I don't talk that much about wonder in my work and maybe I should talk more about it. Wonderment is one of the driving forces that underlies our use of imagination. It might be what prods us to imagine and then it might be that our imaginings prompt further wonderment. So I guess I see it as somewhat 
cyclical or give and take in that wonderment prompts imaginings and then imaginings prompt further wonderment. And that can be a very nice and sort of feedback kind of process that really can lead us in new directions. And I guess I want to emphasize, given that we've talked a lot about the, the distinction between instructive and transcendent uses of imagination, I want to say that I think wonderment plays a role in both contexts. Mm-hmm. So we can employ wonder when we're engaged in all the different sorts of fantastical imaginings, but we can also use wonder when we're engaged in very tightly directed scientific imaginings. And so I think we're going to see wonder across across that divide and it's going to be important in both in both contexts. Thank you so much. When people want to know more about your work, are there favorite books of yours you want to mention or where can we find you online? Ah, well, so I do have a website and my website is amykind.com and there are links to a lot of my works there and some of them are just available on the site for you to explore. Depending on what you're interested in, my recent book on imagination and creative thinking, I think is short and accessible. And so, and it provides a nice sort of overview to those topics. So that might be one good place to start. I lay out my own sort of theory of imagination in an old paper from 2001 that was over 20 years ago, called Putting the Image Back in Imagination. Some people have asked me if I still believe what I say in that paper, and the answer is yes. (laughs) And I hope in the nearest future to be able to come back to some of the issues in that paper and provide a defense of some of them in light of some criticisms and attacks that have come over the years. But in any case, that's a sort of entry point to my sort of the way I would define imagination or the way that I think about it. In terms of my work, I'll mention just a couple more things. In terms of my work on the epistemic value of imagination or the way that we can learn from imagination, I have two papers and they're both in edited volumes. So one of them is in my own edited volume, Knowledge Through Imagination, and that's called Imagining Under Constraints. And so that was published, I think, in 2016. And then another paper, How Imagination Gives Rise to Knowledge, and that was published in 2018. That said, I should say that I think they're better read in the reverse order. I actually wrote them (laughs) in the reverse order. It's just the way the publication cycles go. So I think of Imagining Under Constraints as a sequel to How Imagination Gives Rise to Knowledge. So in any case, that's on epistemic relevance of imagination. And then in terms of the skills-based framework, that I was talking about. I just have a paper on the skill of imagination and that was in an edited collection, the Rutledge Handbook of Skill and Expertise. And I think a lot of these papers are available on my website. So those are those are some of the works that take up some of the themes that we've discussed here. But of course, I've addressed other themes relating, relating to imagination. And so some of those are available too. Depending on how deep a dive someone would want to do into my work, I feel like I've given people plenty to get started on. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Super interesting and so, so very valuable for my research. Thank you for sharing your time and your insights and your knowledge. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure to talk with you. So thanks for inviting me to come on your podcast.
Thank you for listening in. For more information, visit scientificimagination.org. And a quick source reference is in its place here, because during the part that Amy talks about imagining life on exoplanets, you could hear a very tantalizing sound in the background. And this is a sound created by uh, NASA. It's a data sonification of 5,000 exoplanets found in our Milky Way. It's titled Listen to the Sounds of Discovery and can be found on YouTube.